category of disorder called somatic symptom disorders. There are four that we'll talk about, and then and another concept called malingering that we have to use as a differential. Now, the common feature for this cluster of problems is that there is over-concern, there's some presentation, physical, so some bodily symptom, or at least some concern about health in general. So with that as the predominant presentation, you can imagine that these patients don't go see a psychiatrist, psychologist first. It's only after they have gone to see other non-mental health professionals over and over and over again, and there's some determination that they need some psychological help, that when, that's when they actually come to mental health professionals' attention. But non-mental health professionals are going to see these patients long before mental health professionals. Now, the first diagnosis, SSD. The essence of this is that the patient is presenting with a distressful symptom. It's, they're experiencing it, they're worried about it, it exists and is disruptive to them. But something about the way they're perceiving the pain or the symptom or the way they're thinking about this pain or the symptom, is it considered excessive given their medical situation? To the point where doctors are saying, Yes, you might have a herniated disc in your back. Yes, you might have this fractured here. But the amount of disability that you're having this long after you've had the problem, that's just not fitting with what we know about most people that have this problem. And we think that there's a psychological contribution to the excessiveness that you're portraying. Whether it's in the amount of pain or disability, the amount of time you worry about it, the amount of time you're spending on the internet, sleuthing it, something is excessive about it. So this is excessiveness about some bodily symptom, and that can give you SSD. Now, as an example, I had pulled an abdominal muscle working out, and I thought, okay, pulled muscle. And then I want to say, oh gosh, how long am I going to be out of working out because it's really uncomfortable and this is frustrating. And I get on the internet and all of a sudden, differential diagnosis, hernia, untreated hernia. You can die from it. And all of a sudden, oh, maybe I actually have this intestine poking out and it's not a muscle pull. Maybe it's something more serious. And then I started thinking, well, I do have something. I have a legitimate, bona fide, distressful symptom. But now I'm, oh my goodness, I could die. I could die. I better go get checked out. So right away, go to the clinic. Feel, palpate, uh, looks like it's just a muscle pull. Well, anxiety didn't go away, distress didn't go away. So I went back, are you sure? Okay, let's do an ultrasound. Okay, we did an ultrasound. No ultrasound does not show any intestine poking out. So, okay. And then I still worried and worried. And if there were more tests, I would have kept going back. And it had this persisted long and long and not long enough. Finally, someone's gonna say, yes, you have a medical condition. Yes, you have a symptom but your degree of obsess obsessiveness about worrying about the problem would give you SSD. You're, it's beyond what most people would be ex experiencing for this symptom. So for SSD, the focus is on the fact that you have a distressful symptom. Whether or not they can find a reason for your pain or not is irrelevant to the diagnosis. I could come in with this horrible abdominal pain and they can't find a basis for it, or they can find a basis for it. That's not what's critical. The critical point is that I'm coming in with a physical symptom. 
that's distressful, whether you can find a basis for not, irrelevant, but whatever is happening, I'm excessive about it, spending too much time worried about it, the pain, the disability around it. Now, how does that contrast with illness anxiety, IAD? Illness anxiety is an anxiety disorder. And when we cover that coming in future weeks, you'll see how this probably fits better with that chapter because it's just anxiety about what if I have this? Could I get this? I was around you. Maybe I contracted it. Maybe I will get Zika. Maybe I will have chikungunya. Maybe I will have breast cancer because the gene runs. Maybe I will have Alzheimer's. It's what could happen. Do you have any symptoms right now? Uh, no, not really. And yet you still worry, 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 worry about what could develop. So it is an anxiety disorder. DSM said, well, because of the physical health nature of it, they wanted to stick it in this chapter, but conceptualize it as an anxiety disorder. Now, the only tricky part of this diagnosis is that it's clear if you have no symptom and yet you're overly worried about whether you have Zika, it's another thing of what if you have a symptom, but it's really, really minor, but your focus isn't even on, the, it's not the symptom that's not even distressful to you. It's the thought of what it could mean. It's the disease that you could have that is still the focus of your attention. So what are some of these more minor symptoms that you could have with IED? So a, a normal physiological sensation like your stomach growl because it's lunchtime. That is a normal physiological sensation. Look, doctor, it gurgled. Well, that is a symptom, but it's pretty benign. It's pretty uh, natural. And if someone's thinking that that means stomach cancer or, or an, a GI obstruction or then that's probably illness anxiety. It's a minor, trivial, physiological event. Another example of something that would be considered minor would be how about, say that you woke up, you've been sleeping on your side, and your, your fingers are numb because you've been sleeping on your arm and your circulation was cut off, and then one minute later after shaking your arm, your arm is fine. Limited, it was dysfunctional, you didn't have blood to your fingers, but it's fine. And yet now, and for months and months later, <gasps> MS, I could have MS, I could have MS, I could have multiple sclerosis, I could have something wrong with me. It's the fact that, is the symptom bothering you? No, I don't even have it anymore. It's what it could mean because I had it. So again, it's the focus on the disease that it could mean. It was transient, it was expected, it was no big deal. The tingling or the numbness isn't my concern at this moment. It's what it could mean. That's still part of IED. Or how about you belch or you have flatus or again, little bit of discomfort possibly it's not usually meaning you've got some major disease so the idea with IED is you have no symptoms but you still worry you have very minor uh, symptoms that and you're still focused on some disease out there now if you worry that you have a disease I think a lot of people would be doctor shopping they'd be going to the doctor all the time checking out shit like me I would check out check out I'll check out and if I and it's not just even going to the doctors it's how often do you look on your belly for a rash if you think you have Zika? How often are you taking your temperature to see if you've got a fever? It's this repetitive check, 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 see if I've got signs of the thing that I'm worried about. So they have excessive health-related um, actions. And you can imagine, and this is harder maybe for some, if you're so anxious, why would you ever avoid the hospital? Why would you avoid doctors if you're so worried about it? Because you're worried about actually finding out what you've got. It's kind of like you're so fearful that you're paralyzed, you're immobile, because you're so afraid that if what this might mean, and I want to know, but I don't want to know, and you're basically frozen in inactivity. 
So some people, despite their worries, will go to all um, lengths to avoid actually getting checked up. They'll still worry about it, though. So the major difference, which you should look for on, in vignettes, is that you, whether the person has a significant symptom they're presenting with or not. Both IED and SSD could have the worrying. I worried that I had a hernia. Is that IED or SSD? In my case, it was SSD because I had a painful, distressful symptom of a pulled muscle. If I was worrying that I had a hernia and I've got nothing wrong with me, it's just that, oh, my father got one, now I'm worried, worried I could have one. That would be more IAD. All right, so just a little bit of review and check. If you had back pain and doctors can't find a basis for it, what is that? SSD, because you hear they've got back pain. So it's not whether there's a physical basis or not physical basis, it's just there's excessiveness to it. Back pain associated with a disc, but the pain is excessive given the medical condition. Same diagnosis. Okay, so again, excessiveness as long as you've got the symptom. Significant abdominal pain related to ulcer, but you're worried, worried, worried that it's not just ulcer, it's cancer. Still SSD, it sounds like it could be IED because you're worried about cancer, but it's in the context of symptom. So most cases, and this is in reality, most people are going to be diagnosed with SSD. Few would be IAD. Transient stomach ache, you overate, now you're worried it's stomach cancer because stomach cancer runs in the family. That one's trying to give you the flavor of IAD because it was a typical, normal, transient response to, you know, self-limited. Okay, so hopefully that keeps you, keeps those differential. There's some other ones we're going to talk about more and they'll continue to um, discuss as the semester continues is delusional disorder. This is, a, we'll talk about schizophrenia and the related disorders, but delusional disorder says, I know for a fact that, and then in the somatic type of delusion, I have something wrong with my body. Well, how is that different than IAD? I know for a fact I have a hernia versus, gosh, I worry I'm going to have a hernia. I worry I have it. I worry I'm going to die. It's the degree of certainty. You're delusional when you know for a fact unshakably when everyone else is saying there's no evidence for it, no evidence. You can't know for a fact because there's no evidence for it. So you're, draw, you're crossing the line from anxiety to delusion, to a thought disorder. So for delusional disorder, you're hearing more about the absolute certainty without the evidence. We'll also talk under obsessive compulsive chapter about body dysmorphic disorder. They worry. They even can be delusional about their concern about body, but their concern about body is not about health. It's about a, something cosmetic, something vanity. I know for a fact, or I worry that my nose is too big, my hair is too thin, my wrinkles are so ugly. My, but the, when you hear about body concerns in body dysmorphia, it's vanity. It's appearance. It's not health. It's not Alzheimer's. It's not Zika or cancer. It is, I think I look hideous, I worry I look hideous because, and then they find some flaw with their body. Okay, so let's see if you can discern these.
So when I approach the, these type of questions, I want to know, is this person experiencing a symptom or are they just worried about a symptom? They are worried about a disease, but in the context of having a symptom or not having a symptom. They have a symptom. They have had numbness that has persisted and persisted and persisted. And there's an explanation for it, but regardless of the explanation, this person is worried that something much more dire is happening. Does this person know for a fact or just worry? Worry. As soon as they just worry, delusional's out. Is it vanity related? No. So BDD, body dysmorphic, is out. So really we're just distinguishing between SSD and IED. Now, the thing that I think might have thrown 22% of you is that I gave the example of numbness in my arm after sleeping funny and then the symptom goes away. And I'm worried about a disease even though the symptom's long gone and my symptom doesn't even bother me. That was an example of IAD because I had really no symptom. It was transient, minor thing. This is persistent. This is not a minor thing. They are coming forward saying, this is my problem. It is continuous. It's not a self-limited benign issue. So in this case, the numbness is a significant symptom. They are distressful about it beyond what they think is reasonable. And this is a good example of SSD. So is there any evidence? Does she have a symptom? She doesn't have a symptom. She doesn't have a symptom, SSD's out. She's, now you think, is she worried about a disorder? She's worried about breast cancer, yes. Does she know for a fact she has it or worries? Worries. So, you, so you've eliminated delusional disorder because it's not a thought problem. You've got someone who worries about a health issue without a basis that is IED. Good. And last example. Okay, sorry. So these are trying to give you a flavor for how they sound differently. This has a different flavor. This one is, I know for a fact, I demand. This is not worrying. This is beyond reality. And as soon as it's beyond reality, we're looking at a thought problem. Okay. Make sure everyone clicks in. Did you have a, a question on the last one? If you actually, I think in that scenario, the idea is that someone can be genetically, pre, definitely is, likely is genetically predisposed, and that's why they worry about it. 
but they shouldn't worry that excessively if there is no basis you've got. You should be cautious and, and do your checkups and be reasonable, but there's still excessiveness for even other, there's a lot of people genetically predisposed to Alzheimer's, to breast cancer, to various things. So likely they're one of the reasons why they are worried about it is because it runs in their family, but there's still excessiveness. There's some degree of, that's a little bit of over anxiety for the problem. Okay, very good. This is someone who has fixed false belief about a health issue, delusional. Question is, what do we know about what contributes to people that experience pain excessively or the worrying and so forth? Well, one thing that they have found, this is more example in the SSDs, the somatic symptom disorder, which is more common, where they're like in so much more physical distress than anyone else. You know, hundreds and thousands of people have that condition and you shouldn't be in that much pain. You should be able to go back to work. Why are you experiencing pain so dramatically? Well, one explanation is that perhaps the their, their pain centers in their brain are actually sending the message that it is painful. So for example, let's say I have SSD and you apply a, a, a heat stimulus to my arm and you crank up the heat and I will rate the pain that I'm experiencing from that heat. And I'll say, nine out of 10, ah! And they've got me hooked up to functional imaging and parts of my brain are activating and they find that cingulate as it relates to attention and the insula as it relates to perception of pain and somatic, you know, postcentral gyrus as it relates to the touch is lighting up. It's really active. It's underlying my, ah, I'm experiencing it. Now take that same temperature, that same heat um, stimulus and give it to someone who's not SSD. Same temperature. And what does that person say? Ah, three out of 10. And guess what my brain's looking like? not very active. So there's thought to be some underlying physiology. That's the way they're experiencing it. That's what their brain is saying is that's the unpleasantness. And that varies from person to person. So part of it is perhaps their underlying physiology is sending them a message, it hurts. Whether it's average or not, it's what they're experiencing. Another contributor is the thoughts that people have about their symptoms. Thoughts can increase your perception of discomfort. So if you are sitting in class for four hours straight and your head is hurting, if you think it's only because I've been sitting in class in one place looking at a computer, it's just neck strain, eye strain. It probably hurts less than if you think I've got a brain tumor. And if you think brain tumor, all of a sudden things are gonna hurt a lot worse. So your thoughts are amplifying, your thoughts are leading to the amplification of your sensations. And so we think that that's what's happening in part to, with these people is their thoughts are contributing to this excessiveness that they're experiencing. Now, uh-huh. Malignancy. Malig you mean that they actually have malingering? Malingering? Oh, malingering. I thought you said malignancy. Mal we'll get to malingering. Hold that thought. You do need to rule out whether someone's malingering. It's not always so easy to find out who's faking their symptoms or not. Behavioral consequences. When I had my hernia scare, what kind of attention did I get from Duncan? 
well, actually, he was the one that just made fun of me. So how's your hernia? And then you do this as if it was an intestine poking out of my stomach. How's your hernia? <laughs> How's it now? And he was actually drawing attention. I, was, I wasn't even thinking about it, Duncan, and now you're annoying me by, how's your hernia? He really didn't think I had a hernia, but he was mocking me. But he was actually a little more attentive. And the idea is that when you, when you are scared, when, you're, when you have pain, when you're discomfort, when you're worried, people are nicer to you. People call you up. How are you doing? And, and it's, it's a shame that people are only calling you or emailing you or, oh, I heard that you're not feeling well. So the idea is you are getting some reinforcement for your illness. It's not why you're doing it. It's not why you're experiencing it. But it does contribute to continued behaviors, continued thoughts. And now you don't have to feed the goats. And now you don't have to do the dishes. You don't have to go to work. And there's a lot of rewarding aspects of being in the sick role. Oh, and the other thing to mention is that, and when I did think I had my hernia and was going to die because of this poking intestine, I was on that couch, afraid to move. And how long, if you sat there for hours, you don't do anything. You don't really exercise. You don't do, you don't do anything. You lay around thinking you're sick. How do you feel? I feel far more worse, far, far less well when I have been laying around. I feel more tired. I feel more uncomfortable, more crampy, more everything. So the more you play the sick role, or uh, uh, what do you say? The more you conform to the sick role, the more sick you often do feel. Now, what do you do for therapy? Well, usually what you would do is want to get someone into therapy where you get some stress reduction. And a lot of times, these people have been to doctor, specialist, doctor, specialist, doctor, specialist, and now they're being told to see psych. Doesn't go over well. They usually say, what? This isn't in my head. You think I'm crazy? What? So there's some finesse from getting someone to transition from seeing all these non-mental health specialists to seeing mental health specialists. And part of it is having these symptoms, having your concerns and your pain must be stressful. Yes, doctor, it is stressful. Well... What do you think about the idea of getting some help for some stress relief? Because sometimes stress actually can make things a little bit worse. And for example, and you give them so many examples where, let's say you midterms are over, you did well, you're having a party, and your friends are around, music, and you hit your head on the cabinet door. And it was a, a pretty sizable smack. And you're in a good mood. You're like, ah, you blow it off. And yet it hurts, but you blow it off. But yet, okay, you just got in a fight with Duncan, and now you smack your head. Now it's like, oh, it's like so painful and debilitating. You cry, and same incident, same pain, should be same pain, except one you're in a good mood, one you're stressed out. And I think most people can relate to differences in pain based on how stressed you are. So if you can talk the patient into considering getting some help for stress relief, then you can get them into the appropriate venue. You also want to train them in how to not, every time they have a physical sensation, not to go on the internet. Do not check your body for rashes. Do not take your blood pressure four times a day with two different blood pressure cuffs and graph it. Stop logging, stop diarying, keeping your diary. Stop those behaviors and you've got to insist that they stop indulging in those type of behaviors. And then part of what would help them stop those behaviors is get them involved. Usually they're not working, they're not going to school. They're, do something, volunteer work, get, 
go, go get involved in some sort of activity that's a distraction. Because when you are involved in a project, six hours just went by and I didn't even think about that pain that I had. Get them away from focusing on their bodily symptoms, get their mind elsewhere. Then you have to do a little bit of cognitive therapy the next time you have a headache. Brenda, it's not a tumor. What's the likelihood it's a tumor? It's probably just heads. I mean, you have to not just let the thoughts run wild. You have to sort of get, get a hold of them and change those thoughts. And then the encouragement to family members is to be nice to that loved one, even when they're not sick. That when they are healthy and not complaining about symptoms, you still call them up, you still do nice things for them, you still exempt them from chores. Basically, you're trying to reinforce well behavior and not just reinforce the sick behavior. All right, conversion disorder. Diagnosis for when you present with a, what would they say, a pseudo-neurological symptom. It's one that looks like sensory motor functions are compromised. And yet, if you examine them neurologically, their systems work. So this isn't just you have this neurological symptom and we can't find a basis for it. This is you have a neurological symptom and it's incompatible with your neurological state. So this is much more, the requirement is much more stringent that we want evidence that is just inconsistent with it. Not just we can't find why you can't see. We can't find why you can't move your legs. This is, we've examined your system, you should be able to walk, you should be able to see, you should be able to hear. These are just examples of the kind of phenomenon that might be manifested. So whether it's you can't move or you have tick movements or you have what are called pseudo seizures or you're blind, you're deaf, something wrong with altered voluntary motor sensory functions. Now, as an example, this is one I'm more familiar with from working in psych, is the, what they call pseudo-seizures, but in DSM we'd say conversion disorder with attacks or seizures. What you see here is someone who would have gone to neurologist, said they had seizures, described the experiences they've had, but no one actually did an EEG on the person. They just trusted that when you, they say they had these uh, loss of consciousness and motor movements, always a seizure. So they get put on an anticonvulsant. Oh, still having them three times a day. Okay, up your dose, another dose, anticonvulsant. Anyway. Ultimately, what happens with many of these patients is that they're now considered a candidate for neurosurgery. That basically, well, nothing's, the drugs aren't working, your life is compromised, let's cut out that seizure focus. Well, in order to cut out a focus, you've got to find the focus, which means at this point you need to do an EEG and capture them during their event. And likely what that means is you have inpatient for a couple of days, you're hooked up, and you're just waiting. You're waiting in the hospital room or facility until you seize so that you can capture their, their brain waves on EEG and determine where the seizure focus is. And in this case, this is someone who was candidate for neurosurgery, and they caught her in a seizure, and the EEG was absolutely normal. And so the neurosurgeon just said, next, and they went on to someone else and basically referral to psych. Okay, so we'd gone for years and years, antipsychotic medications, and this person's not having seizures. Okay, so 
if you had seizures verified by EEG, but you don't know where the, what, what's causing the seizures. Yeah, you're having seizures, but we don't know why. Is that conversion? No. Not knowing why isn't the issue. That's not the, the hallmark of conversion. If you have seizure-like episodes and your EEG is normal, now this is sounding more conversion because you've got a neurological symptom, no neurological basis for it. So as I said, that's more likely conversion. What about all of a sudden you wake up, you can't speak. I don't know why you can't speak. We can't figure out why you can't speak. At this point, it wouldn't be conversion because it's not just we don't know why you're not speaking. What if we work you up and we find that you should be able to speak because all your systems are intact? That's what's required for conversion. So not just we don't know why, it's we have evidence that you should not be having those symptoms. Now, interestingly, people that experience this reaction, this, this, this phenomenon, usually they wake up and mm, that's their symptom. They, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't move. And it's usually after a stressor where they saw something, heard something, someone they knew lost their legs, and there's something symbolically related to what you normally have, uh, what you would manifest. And the reaction to, all of a sudden, I can't see, is not, Duncan, oh my God, I can't see, get me to the hospital. What's wrong? It'll be, hey, Duncan, you know what? I can't really see today. And it's more this matter of fact, where's, you should be freaked out if you have the sudden onset of a neurological symptom, and they don't tend to have that. And the expression for that is this label indifference, this blasé, matter of fact, yeah, well, I guess, my, I guess my vision will come back someday. It's a weird reaction, which is telling you something about the contributing factors to this. Something stressful mentally has happened, in theory. And now, so they don't think about that horrible thing they saw or did, that they're... It's supposed to be this conver true conversion, that something's mentally distressful, they're converting it into a more physical symptom like this, and now they don't have to think about what they just saw, that horrible event that you know, daughter was molested or husband was cheating on them. Or they don't have to concentrate on that because they've got this physical um, symptom, neurological symptom. We don't understand exactly why. I mean, they're not faking it. These people just are presenting with, they are feeling they can't move, they're feeling that they can't see. And how do you disconnect reality, their, neuro, their neurological system, from what they're aware they can do? And that is still very mysterious. We don't understand that disconnection, but there is a disconnect. One of the goals of therapy is to try to pinpoint or explain to the person why they might have had this onset of symptom that perhaps walking in and seeing their daughter molested is really distressful to them. And if they deal with the distress about that, talk about it, that they don't have the need anymore to have the, the physical symptom. So you're trying to make the connection because usually there is that trigger, that psychological or, or um, environmental trigger, stressor for the problem. Factitious disorder, faking it. You are lying, faking, absolutely false symptoms. Now you can present yourself as I threw up all night long and just lie about it or 
you can bring in emesis and say, I did throw up, look, but the only reason why you have emesis is because you took a drug that made you throw up. So whether you lie about it or actually induce it, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter, it's still lying and faking. In factitious disorder, the reason why you were doing this is because you like the role of being a patient. There's no other reason. I just like being a patient. And when I go to the doctors and everyone asks me questions and they have to do workups and they're concerned about me and I just like the process. You like being students. Clearly you like being students. You like the role of students. I like being a teacher. I like being a mother to goats. I, I like certain roles. Some people hate being a mother to humans. I mean, some, there are certain roles we like. We feel fulfilled in. We feel satisfied. These people have chosen the role of patient. Not mother, not husband, not grandma, but patient. That's, they're getting satisfaction out of that role. Now, are they getting attention from people? Sure, but that's not what, it's the satisfaction from the whole process, the role. You can also have factitious disorder, what's called imposed on another. So on self versus another. Factitious disorder imposed on another, you are presenting, it's typically your child and it's typically mother. So mother presenting child as if child is ill. And again, lying about the seizures the kid had, lying about all the diarrhea the kid had, or inducing it. Doesn't matter, still the same thing. Why would mom do this or anyone do this? And once again, it's they like that role. In this case, they're not exactly the sick role, but they are close to the sick role. By proxy, they're close to the sick role as being the caregiver. When do you even suspect that this is going on. Factitiousness of any sort, whether it's this or, or a malingering. And usually you start thinking about this when this doesn't make sense. Why is this kid only sick when mom comes in? Why is this kid's you know, blood results incompatible with life? What's, this, kid, this result can't even exist. And this kid shouldn't be alive. And you start wondering about what's been tampered with, what's, what's happened. And it's usually not until several admissions for the same problem and the same problem. And like, that wound should be healing. Why isn't that wound healing? Well, if you're washing it with toilet water, it's probably not going to heal. And there's all sorts of things you can do. There was a case where mom was saying, oh, diarrhea, diarrhea. My kid has diarrhea all the time. Well, we don't see the diarrhea. So then she brought diarrhea in, in the, in the diaper. And she had given her kid something to have the diarrhea. And then she threw in menstrual blood. You think someone figured that one out? Another one brought in it, and they put in, like, candy cane, like, to look, make it look like blood. Not very sophisticated attempt there to put candy cane in your urine to say, I've got blood in my urine. But you can do all sorts of things that, like, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. They often are people who will, because they lie so frequently, that they're going to contradict themselves many times about symptoms, about their history, about how many kids they have. They're just going to be you're going to catch a lot, of, a lot of contradictions. And that gives you the hint that they're not being forthcoming. They usually present with a lot of drama. So it's not, oh, I hate to bother you, doctor, but I'm really having a lot of pain. It's, it's the whole histrionic, very melodramatic presentation of their symptoms. And usually it's not, oh, I, I hurt my leg because I tripped. It's going to be a far more fantastical tale than that. You're running a marathon, and 
and some guy mugged you or I mean it's just going to be something what that doesn't happen and they their stories are so outlandish that the term pseudologia fantastica is usually applied to this this problem because it's like what that does that's ridiculous you know I was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and the avalanche struck and now yeah You also find that if they believe they're being watched, they're going to be in much more pain and, and present much more symptomatically. And then as soon as they think no one's watching, then oh, no problem. They're not so in pain. And as an example, this, this was someone who was, uh, they were factitious and they were faking psychiatric illness. You don't just, it's not always just medical faking cancers and everything else. This is, I'm pretending to be depressed and suicidal. And I don't eat and I don't sleep, and they're just lying about everything. And then in the wards, what are they doing? They're the first one in line in the cafeteria, and they're sleeping like a baby through the night. And <laughs> we're watching you outside of the actual interview room. Especially, well, this can be true for the person with factitious or the mom of someone who is factitious sort of by proxy, is they, they want. Yes, yes, I want the explorer surgery. Yes, that stent. Yes, do whatever. Any, any invasive procedure you can think of that they actually want and they, they can become aggressive. And if, and if the doctor's not willing to give them these treatments, they often go somewhere else. And they'll, they'll say, particularly with moms, they'll, they will be no problem. Oh, this could cause a lot of distress and discomfort to your kid. No problem. Go right ahead. And I suggest, and they'll even suggest certain things. So they're very over-involved, almost over-eager in getting their treatment. And another hint might be that someone who keeps coming back, keeps coming back, you can't find anything wrong with them, and they find a whole bunch of scars on their abdomen because they've had uh, exploratory surgery. Because oh, it's appendicitis. No, it's not appendicitis. We're, we can't find anything wrong. Every time you talk about excruciating abdominal pain. And they end up, over time, your hint is, okay, you've gone in a many, many times now. Nothing's ever found. Maybe there is nothing, nothing going on. For factitious disorder, we don't really have a set treatment because most won't go for treatments. Once, they, once you actually express your suspicions that we think you're lying about this or inducing it, they just, no, 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 and then they never come back. And they don't go to see psych. And so treatment basically is, stop giving them medication, stop doing surgery, stop doing invasive procedures, because it's not, it's just putting them more at risk for, for harm. To note is that if you suspect this is by proxy, the Munchausen's by proxy, that this is child abuse, it is mandatorily reportable in every state, so this is a disorder where legal system is going to get involved. Now, those are your four diagnoses in the SSD chapter. Malingering is not a diagnosis per se. It's something you do, and we call it a, it's still a condition, but it's not a diagnosis, but it's still one that is an important differential. In malingering, you're doing the same thing as factitious people. Same thing. Except that you've got a palpable, I'm doing this because. And it is not I like just being in the sick role. This is, I want out of an exam, I want disability insurance. I want drugs because I like heroin and I need opioid painkillers. And there's some other reason that you're doing this. 
So there's more palpable external motivations and incentives for why you are doing this. Could you malinger by proxy? Instead of saying, oh, I've got this pain, my child has this pain. Sure can. What are you getting out of that externally? Well, it depends on what you're telling the doctor the child has, but maybe it's getting painkillers, maybe it's getting stimulant medication because you're saying your kid's got attention deficit. Maybe it's some people. Let's see. Anyone think of else you can use your kid for? Someone had a good one the other day. I was trying to think. This was my, by proxy, there's two examples. One was I injure, <laughs> I injure my child so that my child goes in the hospital because I'm kind of tired of being a parent and I just want to watch football and have a, like a weekend on my own. A student came up with this one. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> okay, so I just need a break from being a parent. I'm going to hurt my kid. And then someone came up with the opposite extreme is that they say that they see this in caregivers of like Alzheimer's patients. Is they, the patient gets hurt or they lie about, oh, this patient's gotten so much worse. They're so, they're agitated. They need to be hospitalized. And then, oh, I don't have to be a caregiver for the weekend. So that's a way of using by proxy of getting something palpable, tangible. Okay. Okay, for, for this type of question, I probably will ask myself, do I have evidence for faking or not faking? Evidence for faking, that eliminates several diagnoses just knowing he's faking. It basically boils down to now malingering or factitious. And then the question is, do we have evidence that he just likes to be in the sick role or is he trying to get out of something? Sounds like, based on a little bit of information I gave you, that there seems to be a reason why he might be doing this. And in that case, it would be malingering. Okay, have a great afternoon. I'll see you on Friday for IMCQs.